Hello everyone and welcome again to Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and other platforms. And if you want to help support them and keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link should be in the description. And if you become a patron, you'll be able to hear my free patron-only lectures, including my upcoming one, which should be on the Shakespeare authorship controversy. But for the past couple of months, I've been researching about Shakespeare, the historical Shakespeare, what can be gleaned about his life, his character, who he was. And in my last installment, I talked about the historical record paper trail about William Shakespeare outside of his poetic and dramatic works. But now I want to talk about his sonnets, which are very distinctive, unique, and surprising if you actually sit down and read them. There's a whole lot to say about the sonnets. There's more than a hundred of them. They're complex. They're often mysterious. They're revealing. And so I might not be able to fit all of this within a reasonable time. I might break it up into more than one installment, but we'll see how it goes and how long it takes to discuss all of this. But I think it's worth going through. And I'm going to start this discussion of Shakespeare's sonnets in an unusual place. As I did when I started talking about Shakespeare's life in the documentary record, I'm going to begin at the end, or at least very close to the end. I'm going to start off by reading sonnet number 144, which obviously comes very late in the sequence, close to the end of the book as it was published in 1609. So I'll just read through the sonnet as written. So, Sonnet 144. Two loves I have of comfort and despair, which like two spirits do suggest me still. The better angel is a man right fair, the worser spirit a woman colored ill. To win me soon to hell, my female evil tempteth my better angel from my side, and would corrupt my saint to be a devil, wooing his purity with her foul pride. And whether that my angel be turned fiend, suspect I may, but not directly tell. But being both from me, both to each friend, I guess one angel in another's hell. Yet this shall I ne'er know, but live in doubt till my bad angel fire my good one out. So I don't know if maybe you have the same reaction to this as I did the first time I read this poem, which is some degree of shock that there is such an explicit poem in so many ways, laying out in such a direct and almost schematic way the weird, slightly sleazy <laughs> sexual predicament that the speaker seems to be in. As he says, he has two loves, and you'll find that frequently throughout the poems, Shakespeare refers to these two figures as loves or in, even as lovers. So these are two people with whom he's had romantic and sexual affairs. 
And he casts them here as kind of opposites, counterparts, contrasting with one another, one male and one female, one fair and one dark colored or colored ill, one good and one evil. And he sets them up in a sort of scene, much like we've seen so many times in popular culture and cartoons through the years, as an angel and a devil sitting on either shoulder and suggesting him, meaning influencing him, in two different directions, right? So in that sense, you could say this is kind of a typical archetypal little formula, the feeling of ambivalence and being pulled in good and bad directions by these two influences. And yet... The weird surprise that comes up in the middle of this poem is that the two of them shack up together. (laughs) And so what we have here is a complete and closed love triangle between two men and a woman. And although it may not come across immediately to a contemporary audience, it's full of sexual innuendo, some of it quite dirty. So he says the woman or the female evil, as he derisively calls her, has tempted his better angel from his side, right, is seducing the young man, right, the the male figure or the fair man, as he's referred to in this poem. And she is seducing him, quote, wooing his purity with her foul pride, right? So the man is pure and the woman is impure. And this word pride is one of many words that Shakespeare frequently uses throughout his works as a double entendre, right? It refers to a quality of character, which can be good or bad, self-regard or arrogance. And he specifically calls it here foul pride. But the word pride also was one of many sexual double entendres. It could mean sexual organs, right? Especially aroused sexual organs could be called pride. So her foul pride here refers arguably to her sexual parts, her vagina, and it's specifically called foul. And foul can mean simply bad, right? Damnable, but also particularly dirty, impure, or foul smelling, Right. So so the, her foul pride seems to be a reference to ill smelling or unclean sexual part. And then as the speaker goes on to explain uh, whether that my angel be turned fiend suspect I may, but not directly tell. He, he suspects that the young man has fallen, has succumbed to her power. And as he says, I guess one angel in another's hell, right? So he's extending this continuing metaphor of sort of heaven and hell, good and evil. And he thinks the man has been entrapped in the woman's hell. But hell is another sexual double entendre that was commonly used in the Elizabethan era to refer to a vagina, right? So he's saying, I think that my beautiful, pure young man is having sex with this somehow uh, dark, impure, evil woman. And finally, he ends with this really, you know, striking, beautiful image. This shall I ne'er know but live in doubt till my bad angel fire my good one out. So this can evoke a scene of of someone being cast out of hell by a sort of blast of hellfire, right? Throwing them, projecting them out. And the speaker is hoping that this is going to happen, maybe so that 
the man will come back to him, or he can maybe learn what has gone on between these two people. But again, this is another sexual double entendre. To fire someone out is a phrase that's common in early modern English to mean give someone a venereal disease. So foul pride arguably is the first hint in the poem that the woman's sexual organs are infected, maybe with syphilis or gonorrhea or whatever, and that the speaker here expects that the woman is going to pass this disease to the young man. And this wraps up this frighteningly ironic little ending where the man is being freed and liberated at the same time that he's being finally contaminated by his affair with the woman. So this particular sonnet, number 144, is certainly not the place where any literary critic would begin their discussion of Shakespeare's sonnets. And it's very rarely reproduced or analyzed or commented on. But I would start there because it's so revealing. It's pithy. It's unusually explicit about the situation in which the speaker has entangled himself. And it really encapsulates this sort of weird love triangle and sexual triangle that the speaker describes and that really uh, frames, I think, the entire series. These two loves, the young man, the fair young man, the innocent young man, and the mature, sexual, alluring woman. In some ways, though, this sonnet is unusual and stands out from the rest, not only in how straightforward it is in explaining the context and the situation, it's also unusual in that it discusses it in third person. He's talking about the man and the woman as figures he has some relationship with, but as he and she. It is not addressed to to one of the lovers. It is not stated as a message to the man or the woman, although it is certainly possible that Shakespeare gave this poem to either the man or the woman. It's also unusual as one of only two of Shakespeare's sonnets that is known to have been published on its own before the 1609 edition of the whole book. So in the year 1599, a short book of poems attributed to Shakespeare was published called The Passionate Pilgrim. And most of the poems in that book are considered to be spurious, not authentically Shakespeare's. But it does include two sonnets, and this is one of them. So for some reason, somebody, maybe Shakespeare himself, or more likely some friend, liked this poem in particular, or saw it as somehow important, and it made its way into print 10 years earlier than the rest of the series. So as I said, this poem sets up a strange parallelism, a sort of frightening funhouse mirror image set of counterparts between these two loves, right? The, the man and the woman. And yet the relationships are presented as parallel. They are two loves. Although they are so different from one another, he has the same relation to them. So the basic situation that this poem seems to set out is one of two simultaneous or near simultaneous love affairs. One with a young man who also is often called by readers and critics the fair youth, and the other a mature, sexually experienced woman, 
customarily called the dark lady. And the speaker here is very frequently torn, ambivalent, anguished by the push and pull between these two people, and he is obsessed with the contrast between them. He excessively idealizes the young man who is practically angelic, and he feels attraction but also contempt and even disgust for the woman. And these three figures exist in this kind of fraught, shifting triangle. So this is not the only poem that specifically refers to the man and woman meeting. And we can infer from the series of poems that that probably the man and woman had a close relationship, maybe a sexual affair, which eventually ended. And so did Shakespeare's affair with the woman. But the relationship with the young man continued on for several years longer. And hence, more of the poems in the book are addressed to the man than to the lady. Okay, so that's just a rough little outline of what we can infer that in so many ways is encapsulated in this pithy sonnet 144. Okay, now, just having said that much already, probably many people are already standing up and pounding their fist on the table and saying, you can't do that. You cannot read the sonnets biographically. Okay, there's a lot of scoffing. Whenever anyone tries to do this, pedants rush in, right, and say, it, you can't read the sonnets biographically or you can't read any literature at all biographically. That's wrong. That's, it's unacceptable. It's vulgar. It's uncouth. It's against the rules, right? And there's a strong lingering influence of certain schools of literary criticism from the 20th century, like formalism and the new criticism, which say that you cannot pull anything about an author out of their works. That is a sort of critical error. And that when you examine something like a poem, you should look on it as a formal exercise, self-contained unto itself, and not mix it up with other material from their other writings or suppositions about the author's life or personality. So this is a, an argument you hear sometimes when people are responding to commentary about literature, but it's made especially frequently with regard to this specific book, right? Shakespeare's sonnets. There is an extreme pervasive discomfort, even antipathy, towards talking about Shakespeare's life from the sonnets, and especially his sexuality. And so they're often kind of shunted aside, siloed off, and treated as just sort of highly erudite philosophical poetry that doesn't tell us about Shakespeare's life or character. And in some ways, you can see this as a continuation of the same sort of discomfort that I talked about in my last lecture about Shakespeare's business career and his dealings in money and finance and how much the picture that we get of him from the documentary record really doesn't match up with how we'd like to mythologize him from his plays, right? But I think that that discomfort is especially strong when it comes to the sonnets, particularly because they involve Shakespeare's sexuality, and it is not showing things that most readers want to see or think about Shakespeare. So a wonderful example of this you can see in uh, an article 
that the Scottish poet Don Patterson published in The Guardian in 2010, where he just discusses his experience of reading the sonnets and how he reacted to them, the discovery of the different poems, the love expressed in them, and the sexuality. And he, at one point, Don Patterson describes Shakespeare as gay. And so, predictably, the article received a flood of negative comments saying, you can't do that, that is breaking some sort of cardinal rule. And just one example of of these comments I'll read. It begins, it's a long comment, and it begins saying, quote, I simply don't approve of reading literature biographically. Shakespeare was a playwright and a poet. He did both for a living, i.e. money. Yes, there will no doubt be a great deal of correlation between the life of the author and the literature produced, but there is no way whatsoever to determine exactly what. We cannot use the sonnets or plays as evidence for who Shakespeare was. Doing so is simply piffy speculation. So I don't know if I've ever seen that term anywhere else, piffy. Maybe it's a nice little Shakespearean neologism, right? But this is a typical kind of response you'll often see, especially from lay people and also from some scholars like Helen Vendler, who's very formalistic in her reading of the sonnets. You can't try to infer facts about Shakespeare from the sonnets. And I think that this derives from a number of sources, right? The discomfort with the kind of wireistic thrill of reading something as private as so many of the sonnets are, something so emotional, and also because of the content, of the kind of sex and romance that they show, which is mostly, in most of the poems, romance and sex between two men. Now, furthermore, many commenters also will say more specifically that you can't describe Shakespeare as, quote, gay or homosexual based on the sonnets. Now, that's a much more complicated question, right? Because the terms gay and homosexual did not exist in the 16th and 17th centuries. We tend to use those terms today to refer to people who are exclusively interested in people of the same sex, and that there's no basis for thinking that about Shakespeare at all, even if we do read the sonnets biographically. So there is a lot of problem in using those sorts of terms or words to talk about Shakespeare. But at the same time, there are all kinds of words and terms that we use now to describe events in the past, like virus or bacterium, that no one had any concept of at that time, but we still suppose that they existed, right? We can talk about the bacillus bacterium causing plague, even though no one had ever heard of such a thing in the 1300s, right? Is gay or homosexual a similar kind of category? Does it refer to a natural kind, a sort of phenomenon that exists on its own through time, transhistorically, or is it something culturally specific? I don't know. I'm not going to take a position on that one way or another, except just to say that there is valid concern about how we apply those kinds of newer modern labels to the life and character of someone like Shakespeare. But be that as it may, what about the more basic and more broad question of can we look at the sonnets as information or evidence about Shakespeare's life? And how would I respond to this objection that literature is not biography? I would respond in short, I'm a historian, not a literary scholar, 
and I do not care about what people think are the proper rules for literary criticism. That's not what I'm doing, right? I am trying to look at this set of documents as a historian. Poems are documents, and hence, they are historical sources. They are artifacts of the particular time and place when they were produced and the people who produced them. And so they're historical sources just the same as letters or journals or financial documents or physical objects, artworks. That's what they are. And historians always have to make inferences and speculate based on limited and problematic evidence. That is the normal thing that we do. And when you do so, you do have to bear in mind the limitations and the conventions of certain genres, right, and of the particular type of source or document that you're working with, right? What are the conventions? What is the unreliability, right? What are the limits, the biases, the fallibility? That is normal. And we have to do this with regard to documents like sonnets or plays or novels or personal writings, journals, whatever. When it comes to the sonnets, one could say, well, they're works of art, so therefore... It's literary conceit, it's a creation of a literary voice or persona, it's not a reflection of the real person, right? Well, when you weigh historical evidence and see what inferences, test out what inferences you can reasonably make from your sources, you have to simply use Occam's razor, right? What is the simplest explanation of how this piece of evidence came about? And whatever is the simplest explanation to account for the existence of that evidence all other things being equal, is the true explanation. So when we look at the sonnets, at these 154 strange, surprising, often convoluted, multi-layered pieces of literature, we have to weigh two possible competing explanations of how they were created. Number one, they are artifacts of real, lived relationships that Shakespeare here is talking about people he really knew, experiences he really had, and that he created these poems, at least in part, as messages to share with these lovers that he's talking to. The second possibility is they're all an elaborate literary conceit built around fictitious, invented characters. Now, looking at these two, it's very clear, I think, from the point of view of historian, it's extremely clear that the correct explanation is number one, that these are products of real lived relationships. And there are several reasons. There are three main reasons why I think that is definitely the better explanation. One is that the surviving external evidence, although it's very scarce, indicates that the primary audience for the poems was personal. Personal acquaintances of Shakespeare, not a generalized literary public. So the first known reference that anyone has ever found to Shakespeare's sonnets appears in the commonplace book by a student named Francis Mears that was published in 1598. So that is a book that I referred to earlier in my last lecture. And you might recall it has a brief mention where Mears is talking about Shakespeare's brilliant, eloquent, beautiful poetry and listed along with his known narrative works, Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Lucrece. He also mentions 
quote, his sugared sonnets among his private friends. Now, this is an interesting reference that is very revealing but ambiguous. So Mears is saying pretty straightforwardly, for one thing, that the main audience that saw these works and that circulated them was Shakespeare's private friends. At the same time, the fact that Mears knew about them and saw fit to mention them suggests that they had gained some sort of wider reputation, that there was some maybe wider literary audience that knew them, that had seen some of them. They may have been circulating already in manuscript. And possibly that's why two of them, the following year in 1599, were published in this kind of piratical edition, The Passionate Pilgrim. However, nonetheless, this one piece of evidence we have indicates that even that wider audience that saw them knew that they were first intended to be private documents. Furthermore, if we look at the eventual publication of the sonnets, when they were printed as an entire book in 1609, there is no indication that Shakespeare gave the publisher permission to publish this collection. Uh, It's actually disputed and debated among scholars whether he more likely did or did not know that these poems were going to be printed. But there are several reasons more tend to lean towards the conclusion that he didn't know. Okay, and there are several reasons why. For one thing, they were not published until 1609, which most likely was about 10 to 15 years after most of them were composed. So there was this long delay. He did not uh, wrap up the volume and take it to a printer. There is very little sign that they had any popular success. They were never reprinted during Shakespeare's lifetime or for more than 30 years after. And only 13 copies of that original 1609 edition survive, which suggests that it did not sell very well and was not very highly valued. And shortly after the publication of the sonnets, Shakespeare actually retired. He stopped writing by no later than 1611, and he had left London and resettled in Stratford by 1610. So the sonnets, whatever Shakespeare intended to do with them or not, they did not help his career. In fact, the evidence tends to point in the other direction, that more likely they helped to end his career because they were so scandalous So for all of these reasons, we have to regard the sonnets as contextually very different from the plays, right? The plays were inherently public. They were intended to be performed. Some of them were highly successful and popular. The poems were none of these things. There is no external indication that Shakespeare wanted or tried to get them to a wider audience. And rather, it seems much more likely they were personal communications, and that when they seem and sound like personal, intimate conversation between real people, that's because that's what they are. That is the simplest explanation. The other evidence tends to back this up. Now, this may seem strange. Why would someone write personal, intimate communications with their lovers in the form of rhyming iambic pentameter? Well, This is where we may have to invoke this old standby excuse when it comes to Shakespeare, which is that he was a genius, right? He had an unbelievably fertile, brilliant, nimble, eloquent 
verbal mind. He had an incredible, rich vocabulary. And he could evidently almost think and talk in rhyming iambic pentameter. He had that kind of verbal dexterity. And on top of that, he wanted to make these personal communications into something artistically strong and lasting. And so that's why we see them in this poetic form. A second reason, an internal reason, why we should suppose that these are real personal communications among real people is that they do not deliver what the literary audience of this time in Elizabethan England would have wanted out of a sonnet series. So series of sonnets were fairly common and conventional. They were popular by this time. They had their roots in Petrarch and his Italian Renaissance sonnets, and then the form was taken up and adapted by English writers such as uh, Edmund Spencer and particularly Philip Sidney, whose very famous and popular sonnet series called Astrophel and Stella was published in 1591. Now, these sonnet series tended to focus on an idealized woman, a sort of beautiful, fair, virginal, often unattainable woman. They are direct first-person accounts of internal yearning and suffering for love of the woman. So it's very much in line with courtly literature. Whereas Shakespeare's sonnets totally blast that convention to pieces, right? They're, they're about love for a man and a sexually experienced mature woman. Furthermore, the poems make many, many references to ill-defined and often kind of untraceable incidents, right? Sort of like a a partial overheard conversation where people and places and events are referred to that are not clearly explained and often have to be inferred. And some of the poems are simply downright cryptic and confusing, right? Which, again, makes no sense in terms of literarily crafted poem series intended for a reading audience. The poems also express all kinds of anger, jealousy, and disgust, especially towards the woman, which again flies in the face of aesthetic expectations, and it is full of sexual allusions, as we already saw in Sonnet 144. So in all of these ways, this was completely inappropriate, unacceptable for the standards of the time. And a final third reason why we should consider them as reflections of Shakespeare's actual biography and experience is because of the way the poems are directed and addressed. The overwhelming emphasis in most of the poems, unlike Sonnet 144, is on the addressee, the person that the speaker is speaking to. And it creates the sense of an ongoing give-and-take conversation, an interactive relationship. So whereas in older sonnet series, most commonly used pronouns are I and she, you know, the first and third person that the speaker is talking about. In Shakespeare's sonnets, you and thou are much more frequent. Second person is much more prevalent than third person and almost as frequent as the first person. So this creates a totally different kind of context and mode for these poems. And the scholar Lynn Magnuson, in her commentary on the Folger Shakespeare Library edition of the poems, 
sums up how she believes you have to read and interpret the sonnets. And she says, quote, Shakespeare's speaker is not analyzing his inner experience in relation to the loved object, the she of most other Elizabethan sequences. Instead, the poems work like conversation, even if they get no direct answer. Most Shakespeare sonnets are less the isolated expression of an I than a social dialogue, albeit with only one speaker. As with any conversation or phone call overheard, they make a demand on the interpreter to imagine who would say this, to whom, and in what situation. Speech is a social activity. What one says depends on whom one speaks to and in what context. Shakespeare, a dramatist turning his hand to lyric, innovates by creating the private thought of his speaker out of the materials of socially situated conversation. So I'm going to give first a little overview of roughly what the poems are about, what the main sort of patterns and themes are. Then I'll discuss the different series, the different sequences of sonnets within the book and what they say and what sort of relationships they depict. And then I'll discuss the publication circumstances, how it came about that these poems ended up being published and what that might indicate about Shakespeare and the people he knew and dealt with. And then finally, I'll discuss the possible identities of the two lovers, the man and the woman, which is very ambiguous and open to uh, dispute and maybe unresolvable. Okay, so first to just give a little summary overview. The book, as published in 1609 under the title Shakespeare's Sonnets, has in it 154 poems. And all but three of the poems are in the exact same poetic form, namely a 14-line sonnet in iambic pentameter that is rhyming with three rhyming quatrains followed then by a single concluding rhyming couplet. Out of these 154 sonnets, one can discern two basic groups or series, each of which is addressed to a different figure or person. First, there are 126, which forms the bulk of the sonnet series, addressed to a young man, also often called the fair youth. And this long string of 126 poems reflects a shifting and changing relationship. It ends with number 126, which is a 12-line poem, missing the final concluding couplet, which suggests in its form that this was intentionally a concluding poem, marking the end of the relationship, sort of sending off the young man and leaving off the couplet to represent the missing couple. Following these, there are then 28 poems addressed to a woman, often called the Dark Lady, and these poems seem to reject a comparatively briefer affair, although torrid and passionate and full of ambivalent love, hate, and lust. These two relationships reflected in the two series of poems cross and intersect several times. There are poems in both series that refer to the man and the woman knowing each other 
and having some sort of possible affair with one another, thus creating a complete love and sex triangle. Nonetheless, the relationship with the young man seems to have continued on longer uh, than that with the woman. And so hence, the later poems to the young man probably were the last ones to be composed. So there are various clues that suggest that the sonnets to the lady were actually composed early on, possibly before any of the sonnets to the young man, although we, we don't know that. We can't know that for certain. But if you want to weigh them against each other chronologically, probably for the most part, the ones to the dark lady were written earlier. Overall, thematically, there are certain obsessive themes that Shakespeare keeps returning to over and over again, almost compulsively. One is the goodness and purity of the young man, who he really puts up on a pedestal. Another is the contrast between the young man and the dark lady. They're contrast both physically in appearance and in their character, right? The one's honesty and loyalty as opposed to the other's cruelty and so on. Another is the contrast between the young man and the speaker. The speaker dwells repeatedly on his own inadequacy. He expresses deep insecurity about his talent, his looks, his attractiveness in comparison to the beautiful and charming young man. And in connection to that, there's a continuing obsession with the cycles of time, the ebbing and flowing of days, of months, of seasons, of years, and also with that, the aging process, both the maturation and eventual aging of the young man and the aging of the speaker who feels that he is too old for the young man. And finally, sort of capping that off, the desire for immortality or for eternal youth, which the speaker wants to preserve both for himself and for the young man. So now what if we look at the poems specifically? What do they reveal about Shakespeare and these two people. Well, I'm going to start with the poems to the Dark Lady, because as I said before, they probably were mostly written a bit earlier. And so it makes more sense historically to start from there and work back. So if we look at the poems to the Dark Lady, they begin with number 127. And the first three, 127, 128, and 129, each introduce some sort of central theme or concern for Shakespeare about the woman that then repeats and is developed through the whole series. So if we start with number 127, what does it tell us about Shakespeare and the lady? So the first theme, which comes up right away with Sonnet 127 and then runs through all the rest of the poems about the lady, really, is the obsession with her dark coloration. This is something Shakespeare cannot get over and is sort of grappling with. And we see it start right off with this first poem to the lady, number 127. In the old age, black was not counted fair, or if it were, it bore not beauty's name. But now is black beauty's successive heir, and beauty slandered with a bastard shame. 
For since each hand hath put on nature's power, faring the foul with art's false borrowed face, sweet beauty hath no name, no holy bower, but is profaned, if not lives in disgrace. Therefore my mistress's eyes are raven black, her eyes so suited, and they mourners seem, at such who not born fair, no beauty lack, slandering creation with a false esteem. Yet so they mourn, becoming of their woe, that every tongue says beauty should look so. So in this poem, Shakespeare seems to put down or criticize those who used cosmetics, right? Every hand has put on nature's power, faring the foul with art's false borrowed face. And he's condemning them in comparison to the new form, the new look of beauty, which is black. Whereas makeup tries to take what is foul and turn it fair, now what is fair is foul, in a sense. It is what is dark, right? So he's fascinated with this reversal and this sort of paradox of dark being fair and foul being beautiful. And he almost wants to say that black is beautiful, but he holds back. He doesn't quite say it, almost as if he's struggling Rather than saying beauty is black, he says black is beauty's successive heir. It has somehow replaced beauty. And in his final line, he says every tongue says beauty should look so. As if there's a wish or an anticipation for what is dark to become beautiful or to be recognized as beauty. But he can't quite bring himself to do it, to actually make that change or that reversal. And you see this kind of confusion and ambivalence running through many of the poems to the woman. Like, for example, in number 132, he begs for the lady to take pity on him and accept his love. And he finally says at the end, quote, Then will I swear beauty herself is black, and all they foul that thy complexion lack. And this is significant both because it carries on this theme of trying to persuade yourself, trying to change your mind to see black as beautiful. And it also explicitly says her complexion is black. Right? That's the definite implication of this final couplet. And if you look through the poems, he goes over and over again describing her color and makes very clear her hair, her skin, her eyes are all dark colored. Right? We're not talking about a sort of pale, wan lady with black hair. We're talking about a woman who was dark in all her features. And he wants to embrace this as beauty, but he can't quite accept it. And in some poems, like 137, he sort of scolds himself and can't believe that he's making this sort of mistake, confusing dark with fair. And he says in one quatrain in number 137, quote, Thou blind fool, love, what dost thou to mine eyes, that they behold and see not what they see? They know what beauty is, see where it lies, yet what the best is, take the worst to be. Right? He's, the world is sort of turned upside down. And finally, in one of the last poems, in number 152, he again scolds himself in this final couplet, which you could see in a way as the last couplet addressed to the lady. He says, quote, For I have sworn thee fair, more perjured I, to swear against the truth so foul a lie. Right? So again, this contrast between fair and foul. What is foul is fair, what is fair is foul. 
Okay, so that is this probably the most prevalent theme through these poems to the lady. Then if we go to the second poem to the lady, number 128, we see that she is a musician, or at least is musical. And this poem seems to describe the lady playing the virginal, which was a form of small harpsichord that was fairly expensive but still increasingly popular in Elizabethan England, especially in social gathering places. So sonnet number 128 says, quote, How oft when thou my music, music playest, upon that blessed wood whose motion sounds, with thy sweet fingers when thou gently swayest the wiry concord that mine ear confounds, do I envy those jacks that nimble leap to kiss the tender inward of thy hand, whilst my poor lips, which should that harvest reap at the wood's boldness by thee blushing stand? to be so tickled that they would change their state and situation with those dancing chips or whom thy fingers walk with gentle gait making dead wood more blessed than living lips since saucy jacks so happy are in this give them thy fingers me thy lips to kiss so this is the first poem explicitly addressed to the woman and you can see it's seductive It sees her as alluring, fascinating, and also having this talent of nimbleness in playing the instrument. And this not only sets up this this theme of music, and often her voice and her words are compared to music, it also sets up this theme of her having a kind of power, a sort of invisible power to manipulate the speaker. Thirdly, if we look at Sonnet 129, This third sonnet to the lady introduces the last really major theme, which is that while she is sexually alluring, she is also at the same time disgusting. And Shakespeare is violently ambivalent. He feels lust for the woman, but at the same time feels uh, dirty and impure because of this lust. So it may be rather shocking, but right after that, you know, romantic an atmospheric poem about playing the virginal, we now get number 129, which reads, The expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. And till action, lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust, enjoyed no sooner but despised straight, past reason hunted and no sooner had, past reason hated as a swallowed bait, on purpose laid to make the taker mad, mad in pursuit and in possession so, had, having, and in quest to have, extreme, a bliss in proof and proved a very woe, before a joy proposed behind a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. So it's a little scary to imagine, did Shakespeare actually give that poem to the lady? (laughs) You could see it's kind of the ultimate expression of mourning after regret, right? What have I done, right? And and the initial line, the expensive spirit, right, is another double entendre, both the waste of one's energy uh, and also the waste of spirit in the sense of fluids, bodily fluids, and maybe also the waste of one's immortal soul, right, being sullied with, with the sin of, of fornication. 
And in the ending couplet, after this long kind of tirade about the evil, corrupting power of lust, he ends by saying, the world does not know, quote, to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. So again, this collision of heaven and hell, this contending of heaven and hell, just like we saw in Sonnet 144, where heaven and hell are associated with the man and the woman. And again, hell is another double entendre, right? The hell of regret, the hell of shame and disgust, and also hell meaning a vagina. So 129 brings us down to this kind of terrifying depth of, of self-disgust, of blame, which the speaker apparently repeatedly feels about his attachment to the lady and which he often projects then onto the woman, right, and casts her as foul, impure, uh, disgusting, loathful, with heavy overtones, of course, of misogyny, right, of so these basic themes, the obsession with her dark color, the power that she wields, symbolized by music, and the ambivalence of attraction and disgust, all of these things then come together in the next, the fourth poem, which is probably the most famous poem addressed to the lady, number 130, and which begins with the famous lines, quote, my mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. So this poem, I won't go through all of it, but it's, on the one hand, it's clearly a parody of the overly romanticized and idealized sonnets of Spencer and Philip Sidney, right, where the woman is pure and surrounded by a gold halo and she's ivory white, right? Shakespeare is rejecting that and saying, no, my mistress is a real woman, right? She, she's not this angelic creature. She's a real flesh and blood woman. And my favorite line, he says, I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. But he ends with this couplet, and yet by heaven, so again this bouncing back and forth between heaven and hell, and yet by heaven I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. So you could see in Sonnet 130, maybe he's trying to kind of come to terms with his strange conflicting feelings and say, I can love this woman, I can adore her, even though she does not fit any of the standards of what a beautiful fair maiden is supposed to be. But really, the center does not hold. And rather, in many of the rest of the poems, we see him still grappling with these feelings, this push and pull of love and hate, of attraction and disgust. A few poems later, we see the first appearance of references to the triangular affair of the speaker, the young man, and the lady, all entangled romantically with one another. And this starts with sonnet number 133. And sonnets 133 and, and 134 have a kind of extended conceit where they describe the woman as a sort of jailer who has stolen and imprisoned the young man, and by doing so has also stolen and imprisoned Shakespeare himself by extension because he is so attached to the young man. So if we just look at the first two quatrains of 133, he says, Beshrew that heart, 
that makes my heart to groan, for that deep wound it gives my friend and me. Is it not enough to torture me alone, but slave to slavery my sweetest friend must be? Me from myself thy cruel eye hath taken, and my next self thou harder hast engrossed. Of him, myself, and thee I am forsaken, a torment thrice threefold thus to be crossed. So these poems extend this theme of the sort of uh, invincible power that the woman has both over Shakespeare himself and now over his friend as well at the same time. And it begins this theme of threes, of concatenating three upon three, right? We're, we're caught in a triangle, thrice threefold. And the theme of the love triangle that I'm describing shows up mostly in poems that have the number three in them, like 133, where it first appears, and then others later, like 143. And there's also a growing theme here, as I said, of her immense power and of her sort of indifference, her cruelty and wantonness in how she exercises that power that she holds. And that power seems to be embodied most of all in her eyes, these haunting dark eyes that Shakespeare can't escape from. And for instance, sonnet number 149 involves expressions of devotion to the woman to the point of obsession. And it begins by saying, Canst thou, O cruel, say I love thee not? And he describes how much he sacrifices to be with and to earn the attentions of this woman and finally complains that he is, quote, commanded by the motion of thine eyes. And so she has this power almost like an ancient goddess, although he says she doesn't walk like a goddess. She has this sort of uh, supernaturally powerful gaze like a goddess. Okay, so that's just a little discussion of, of what Shakespeare says about this woman and his relationship with her. There's more that we could guess or infer beyond that. But before we get into what sort of person she might have been or what her name even might have been, Let's then go back and look at the other series, at the Sonnets to the Young Man. So the Sonnets to the Young Man, there are much more of them, 126, and they seem to have been produced over a long period going through many events and developments. And they begin with a set of 17 sonnets at the beginning, 1 through 17, that are customarily called the Procreation Sonnets. These, like the sonnets to the lady, these sonnets obsessively return to certain central themes that Shakespeare keeps repeating in different words and forms. These sonnets are addressed to a young man, an apparently good-looking young man, the way these poems describe him, and they repeatedly urge him to marry and father children. And the reason why he must marry and father children is in order to carry on his own beauty for posterity. It is, in the speaker's view, it is wrong, it is selfish for him to allow his beauty to age and die without passing it on for future generations. So these poems are overwhelmingly formulaic. They're repetitive. They're a little strange. They involve all kinds of sophisticated, multi-layered wordplay, but in a very often kind of cramped, overly erudite style. And several of them, although these are not his most famous or popular 
poems. Some of them have sort of stood the test of time and been uh, become somewhat popular and been anthologized at different times over the years. But more or less, it suffices just to read number one, the first one, just in order to see the style of how they work and what they're talking about. So number one, from fairest creatures, we desire increase that thereby beauty's rose might never die. But as the riper should by time to cease, his tender air might bear his memory. But thou, contracted to thine own bright eyes, feedst thy light's flame with self-substantial fuel, making a famine where abundance lies, thyself thy foe, to thy sweet self too cruel. Thou that art now the world's fresh ornament and only herald to the gaudy spring, within thine own bud buriest thy content, and tender churl makest waste in niggarding. Pity the world, or else this glutton be, to eat the world's due by the grave and thee. So the first line there of sonnet number one, he's setting up a sort of general philosophical proclamation. This is what we, the, the smart people of the world, want. And from fairest creatures, we desire increase. So creatures, he's using this very expansive, ambiguous term that can refer to any sort of mortal beings, people, right? Humans are creatures, animals, or maybe all living things, animals and plants. And the conceit that he then sets up and carries through the poem is one actually of plants, right? Beauty's rose, a flower, something associated not only with aesthetic beauty, but love, eroticism, sex, right? But the rose is mortal. It eventually dies and, and decays. So therefore, it has to bloom and and reseed, right, to keep the beauty of the rose being reborn over and over again. But the young man isn't doing that because he's, quote, contracted to thine own bright eyes. And contracted means, on the one hand, it means the opposite of increase. It means shrinking, diminishing. It also often meant betrothed to marry, right? You are contracted to your own bright eyes. You're failing to marry a partner and carry out your duty of procreation because you're obsessed with yourself. You have lit your flame with self-substantial fuel and, quote, you, you have in your own bud buriest thy content, right? So content can mean happiness, pleasure, right? You're getting pleasure from yourself, right? You can see the sort of reference that Shakespeare is starting to make here. Instead of, instead of having proper sex and procreating, you're pleasuring yourself, and also content, your body, your, the seed that comes out of your body is bearing, being buried in your own bud. You are not, you're failing to flower, right? And this is one of the many references he uses to buds, right? The, the, the thing that is beautiful but just coming to maturation and now needs to bloom, right? And so there's this expression of constant frustration and disapproval through all these poems that you're holding back, you're staying closed, you're not opening up and flowering. And these sonnets hit this theme over and over again, and they warn more and more about aging. Sonnet number two famously begins with the lines, when 40 winters shall besiege thy brow and dig deep trenches in thy beauty's field, thy youth's proud livery, so gazed on now, will be a tattered weed of small worth held. So this, this really brutal, aggressive warning 
you're not going to look so good <laughs> for very long. And you'd better prepare for that, right, by doing what adults do, marrying and having children. So this is a series of sonnets that, although they're interesting and sometimes beautiful in their way, they're quite stilted and repetitive. And it's been theorized that Shakespeare probably was commissioned. Some patron commissioned him to write this series as part of a campaign to persuade a young man to get married. Some young man who, in Don Patterson's words, is showing, quote, the proverbial lack of interest in the opposite sex, now needs to be pressured into marrying and having children. And furthermore, it seems from a lot of the words and phrases that Shakespeare slips in about succession, legacy, about repairing and maintaining your house, that probably this young man was of the upper class. He was probably a titled noble of some sort who needs to marry in order to carry on his noble family. Now, still, this is not certain, and some scholars disagree and say, well, that could just be metaphorical, right? He's just using this sort of metaphor of the house to mean the man's body, right? Uh, and there's no definite indication anywhere of exactly who he was or what his social standing was necessarily. Instead, the, the really rich, continuing main metaphors of the series are not about the house or the family. They're about farming, right? Metaphors of plowing and breeding, right? Keeping up livestock and of planting, harvesting, right? As all as metaphors for fertility and reproduction. And interestingly, none of these poems, although they are continually aimed at getting the young man to marry and father children, they make no reference at all to the pleasure or joys of women, of female companionship, to the pleasures or joys of marriage or married life. Uh, it's really all just about the young man himself, right, and what he has to offer in terms of his beauty and his charm. So it's a very strange series in that way. Again, maybe backing up Don Patterson's argument that it was an established fact that this young man wasn't interested in women. Now, there is a shift in tone and relation and eventually in thrust of these poems as you go through them. So the first nine are all general and instructive. They all use the first person plural, we. We want this, we need this. This is very different from more famous sonnet series that were popular at the time, where you have first person singular, I need this, I want this, I love this woman. They're, again, they're very formalistic, right? And they focus on the need for procreation. But then number 10, sonnet number 10, is where things start to change. So in sonnet 10, you see the first use of first person singular. He's exhorting the young man to father children, and he says, do so, quote, for love of me. So this is the first suggestion that the author here wants something for himself personally, and that he thinks that the young man loves him, or at least has some regard for him, which at the time could be referred to as love. After that, sonnets number 11 through 17 become progressively more personal, and they start using a different sort of address, referring more to first person and to the speaker's relationship with the young man. And then there's a really dramatic new development in number 15, 
which ends with the couplet, quote, All at war with time for love of you, what he takes from you, I engraft you new. So most of Sonnet 15 is on the familiar themes of marry, reproduce, create progeny. But then there's this new suggestion suddenly at the end that the author himself also can save the young man from the ravages of time and aging. That my poetry, not just progeny, but poetry, can keep your beauty and charm alive. And strangely enough, he makes this suggestion while still using the same agricultural metaphor in graft, right? When a fruit-bearing tree, and we've seen all these references to buds and fruits, when a fruit-bearing tree has a limb or branch that's dying, you cut it off and engraft something onto it. And so in some way, Shakespeare seems to be saying these poems he's composing will keep the young man alive and fresh. Then number 17, two poems later, Sonnet 17, is clearly transitional. There's still this obsessive fear of aging and of the young man losing his beauty, his charm, his freshness. But then at the end, you have a dual ending where both possibilities come into play. And the speaker says, in the future, he posits, the beauty of your eyes, your graces are going to be lost and forgotten. But, he says, quote, were some child of yours alive that time, you should live twice, in it and in my rhyme. So now the idea of reproducing and of the poetry being immortalizing are being put together, squeezed together in this one concluding line. And after number 17, you then get sonnet 18, which you've probably seen or heard before, which is the most famous of all of Shakespeare's sonnets. It is clearly a love sonnet, and it's dramatically different from everything else that comes before it. So before I discuss it and what it says and what it might mean, I'll just read to you again Sonnet 18. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declines, by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe and eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. So this sonnet number 18 gives a powerful sense of relief, of some sort of tension that has been binding up the language of the previous sonnets, being finally let go. The lines of Sonnet 18 are fluid. They sound natural, mellifluous. They don't have these cramped aside phrases and caesuras breaking them up, like Sonnet 1 and 2 that I read earlier. They continue the same sense of purpose 
of preserving the young man's youth and beauty. And the lines also continue the same metaphorical conceits that we've been seeing before of the garden, the buds, and spring coming and going. But now, finally, there is no mention of marriage or procreation. That theme has been dropped, and it never comes back. Now, the way the young man is going to be saved for posterity is Shakespeare's poems. So long lives this, and this gives life to thee. So in many ways, Sonnet 18 is is a breakthrough, and it's the beginning of the rest of the series to the young man, which are mostly really unabashed poems of love, of obsession, of attraction, and that have certain new metaphors now running through them, apart from this fertility metaphor. Instead, now we get a sun metaphor. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed. The young man is glowing. He is radiant like the sun. He lights up everything around him. This is a theme that then runs through many more of the poems to the man, and that also makes its way into Shakespeare's plays. And you can see interesting points of contact with the plays. But before we get into that, when you look at Sonnet 18 and you consider it as a kind of conclusion after those 17 procreation sonnets, it then raises certain questions. If Shakespeare is no longer here to try to convince the man to marry, and maybe after Sonnet 17 he's finished his commission and he's not talking about that anymore, then why is he writing them? And what is the nature of his relationship now to this young man? If he's not a patron, if he's not a patron's child, what is his relationship? Is this a relationship of romantic love? It certainly sounds like a love poem. Is it erotic? There's a sort of erotic feel, you could say, to Sonnet 18. So it raises these questions. What, what now is this a love affair? What does this mean? And it seems as if those same questions came up to Shakespeare and the young man themselves. And in response, we then, two poems later, we get sonnet number 20. This is one that you might occasionally see reprinted here and there only because it's seen as a curiosity and because it's really controversial. It's not something you're going to see in your high school textbook like Sonnet 18. But if we keep in mind these questions about what now, how does Shakespeare view this young man and what sort of relationship does he want, let's then listen to Sonnet number 20. A woman's face with nature's own hand painted hast thou, the master mistress of my passion. A woman's gentle heart, but not acquainted with shifting change, as is false women's fashion. An eye more bright than theirs, less false in rolling, gilding the object whereupon it gazeth. A man in hue, all hues in his controlling, which steals men's eyes and women's souls amazeth. And for a woman wert thou first created, till nature, as she wrought thee, fell a-doting, and by addition me of thee defeated, by adding one thing to my purpose nothing. But since she pricked thee out for women's pleasure, mine be thy love, and thy love's use their treasure. So, there is a lot to unpack in Sonnet 20. But for one thing, right off, 
Shakespeare is expressing not just love but passion towards this young man, and he's characterizing him as androgynous, the master mistress of my passion. You have a woman's face. You are naturally female in some way. And this androgynous figure, Shakespeare makes it very clear, attracts the attention of both men and women, right? Which, you know, really is not that unusual or uncommon. Sometimes sort of androgynous, slightly effeminate young men appeal to people of both uh, sexes. And furthermore, he sets up this weird creation myth that you were supposed to be a woman, but nature ruined you for me. She, me of thee defeated, she ruined you by adding one thing. And in case it's not totally clear already, what is that one thing? He says, she pricked thee out for women's pleasure. And yes, prick was used to mean penis in the 16th century. So in sum, Shakespeare is saying, I am attracted to you. I feel passion for you. And he again uses these metaphors of being dazzled by light like the sun, gilding the object whereupon it gazeth. But he says there is one thing, the fact that you have male genitalia, that means that therefore I won't have sex with you. Okay, mine be thy love, but thy love's use their treasure, meaning sexually you will, you will relate with women, not with me. Now, many critics through the years have looked at Sonnet 20 and said, aha, you see, this means Shakespeare was not attracted to the young man. <laughs> there is no sexual or erotic attraction here, and therefore it's not gay or anything like that. The, the fallacy here should be clear. The fact that Shakespeare says, I don't want to have sex with you because you have a penis, doesn't mean, therefore, he's not attracted to him. It just means that either he doesn't like the idea of having sex with a person who is of the male sex, or he feels it's wrong. He feels social convention or taboo. Tell him he shouldn't do that or he shouldn't want that, right? So at least provisionally, as of Sonnet 20, we see Shakespeare saying, all right, we're not going to have a sexual relationship because you and I are both male, right? Now, that resolution apparently does not hold up, okay? <laughs> there is clearly a lot of erotic chemistry here between the two of them. They begin a love affair which does eventually become sexual. We won't talk about that just yet. I'll leave that till a bit later when we get to other poems that talk about that. But in the next 12 poems after number 20, 21 through 32, we see what is now clearly a reciprocal love affair. Okay, in number 21, he refers to him as my love. Uh, and it has very similar themes and phrasing to number 130 to the lady. There's a sort of parallelism of grappling with how can I be attracted to this person when I'm not supposed to be. In Sonnet 25, he says that it's a mutual love. I love and am beloved. And later in 32, he refers to himself as the young man's lover. And later on in later poems in this series, he also refers to the young man as his lover, right? And lover, again, at the time meant lover. And in case anyone has any doubt, it's clear that he's still talking in these sonnets about the young man, and he refers to him as male. In Sonnet 26, he refers to him as Lord of my love. And in 27, he makes clear that this is a really obsessive love with strong, erotic, 
overtones, even if it's not necessarily sexually consummated as of yet. So if we look at number 27, it sets up a certain scene that also becomes a recurring theme through many of the sonnets to the young man of obsessing about him and staying up at night thinking about him. So I'll just read number 27. Weary with my toil, I haste me to my bed, the dear repose for limbs with travel tired, but then begins a journey in my head to work my mind when body's work's expired. For then my thoughts, far from where I abide, intend a zealous pilgrimage to thee, and keep my drooping eyelids open wide, looking on darkness which the blind do see, save that my soul's imaginary sight presents thy shadow to my sightless view, which like a jewel hung in ghastly night makes black night beauteous and her old face new. Lo, thus by day my limbs, by night my mind, for thee and for myself no quiet find. So this is something that, you know, many lovers can can relate to, right? I'm, I'm kept up at night, tossing and turning, thinking about you. My mind is going to you. And he says, my, my mind intends a zealous pilgrimage to thee, like a pilgrimage to a holy site, right, or to Jerusalem. And this is one of many, many religious references that then work their way through these poems to the young man, where the man is like a saint or a, a divine angelic figure that he is devoted to, right? And there are many poems later, the next one, number 28, and then later number 43 and number 61, again repeatedly describe being kept up at night, thinking, uh, being agitated, thinking about the young man. Then number 33 is new and different, from these others. It seems to refer to some sort of strange incident, an unclear incident in which the young man has somehow sullied or disgraced himself. Perhaps it's referring to some kind of infidelity, and it uses an extended metaphor of the sun being darkened by clouds, which is something that Shakespeare thinks of over and over again when he's talking about his love for this young man, that he is the sun, but that he Although he shines bright, he is sometimes dimmed or covered over, right? We saw that in Sonnet 18, sometimes is his gold complexion dimmed. Well, this sort of metaphor kind of blows up in our faces, you could say, in Sonnet 33. And I'll just read this one to you. Full many a glorious morning have I seen Flatter the mountain tops with sovereign eye Kissing with golden face the meadows green gilding pale streams with heavenly alchemy. Anon permit the basest clouds to ride with ugly rack on his celestial face, and from the forlorn world his visage hide, stealing unseen to west with this disgrace. Even so my sun one early morn did shine with all triumphant splendor on my brow. But out, alack, he was but one hour mine, the region cloud hath masked him from me now. Yet him for this my love no whit disdaineth. Sons of the world may stain when heaven's sun staineth. So these sort of concerns that we saw in the lady poems of impurity, foulness, right, have now somehow erupted into these poems to the young man. And this beautiful 
sun has been darkened, right? Not just by clouds, but by ugly clouds, right? If we look at the beginning of the poem, not only is he using this metaphor of the sun shining on the land and the, the glorious morning, he's intentionally relating it to, to kissing, right? Flatter the mountaintops, kissing with golden face, the meadows green. And as scholars like Joseph Pequigny particularly have pointed out, a lot of these phrases are also sexual double entendres that are used to have sexual meanings in Shakespeare's other poems, like uh, Venus and Adonis, the meadows green was a way of talking about the, the pubic area, right, and body hair, which also then aligns with this line gilding pale streams, right? What are pale streams? Have you ever seen pale used as a description of an actual flowing stream? Or is it talking about body fluids, right? And heavenly alchemy, of course, is the the art of extracting precious fluids, right? So there's clearly a lot of sexual overtone, but then something terrible has happened here. And he has allowed something to ride upon his face. So again, this seems to be the first indication that there's some sort of rupture in this relationship, some sort of problem. And it's then carried on and repeated through two more poems, repeating the same sort of images and metaphors. And then these same kind of metaphors, again, you see in the plays. So the idea of the sun, the shining sun, representing the young, beautiful love object. You can think of Romeo and Juliet. What light in yonder window breaks, tis the east, and Juliet is the sun, right? And then particularly in Henry IV, part one, there's a soliloquy by Prince Hal that has been described as basically a tissue composed of lines from the sonnets, particularly these sonnets, 33 to 35. And Henry IV, part one, centers mainly on a young prince who cavorts and socializes with sort of lowly, disreputable people in a tavern, and particularly a sort of old, fat, bumbling, but also witty and humorous old knight named Falstaff loves Hal, passionately, probably erotically, right? And Prince Hal welcomes or accepts these attentions from Falstaff, but then in the first play, at one point he turns to the audience and delivers a soliloquy where he warns that he's going to turn Falstaff away. And he likens himself to the sun. And he says, quote, Yet herein will I imitate the sun, who doth permit the base contagious clouds to smother up his beauty from the world, that when he please again to be himself, being wanted, he may be more wondered at by breaking through the foul and ugly mists of vapors that did seem to strangle him. So a lot of this same words and same obsessions, foul, ugly mists or clouds, covering up the beautiful radiant sun, which symbolizes a beautiful young man, right? This suggests that in some way, perhaps Shakespeare thought there was some parallel between this situation that arose in his relationship with the young man and the relationships he's depicting in Henry IV, between this charismatic but rather fickle and aloof young prince, who of course is very high status, right? He's the king's son. And this kind of smart and witty but gross, disgusting <laughs> older man who's obsessed with him, right? 
Maybe this reflects something about Shakespeare's self-perception. You can now, now that we've seen the importance, the centrality of this sun metaphor in Shakespeare's writings about the young man, you can then contrast that with the opening lines of Sonnet 130 to the lady, which says, my mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. <laughs> right again, he's, he's so adamant about drawing these contrasts between the man and the lady. Okay, so it seems that after Sonnet 36 or 37, possibly the relationship returns and is somehow repaired, and they continue this love affair. And then in Sonnet number 42, we see another reference, in this case addressed to the man, referring to his affair with the lady, meaning the young man now hooking up with the lady. So this is another uh, parallel discussion of the love triangle. And sonnet number 42 says, quote, That thou hast her, it is not all my grief, and yet it may be said I loved her dearly. That she hath thee is of my wailing chief, a loss in love that touches me more nearly. So he's again comparing his love for the woman and the young man. And he's saying, once again, like in the sonnets to the lady, he's saying that he really loves more dearly the man than he does the woman. And he says, I loved her dearly, but past tense, right? At some point in the past, he implies he did love her dearly, but not anymore. Now he chiefly cares about the man. And interestingly, this poem 42, like sonnet 144 that I started off with, uses this complex rhyming scheme alternating between masculine and feminine rhymes, right? So masculine rhyme traditionally means a rhyme that ends on a single stressed syllable, like grief and chief. And then feminine rhymes are rhymes that end on two syllables, a stressed and then an unstressed, like dearly and nearly. And again, we see this used over and over in these poems about the love triangle where he's trying to work out these feelings about the man and the woman, he sort of slips in this cute reference, again, to the contrast between male and female, masculine and feminine, and even maybe to androgyny and the androgynous qualities of both of these people that he's so attracted to. So again, the relationship seems to continue, right? If we suppose that Sonnet 42 maybe was composed around the same time, as Sonnet 144 and 133 and 34 that refer to the love triangle. This relationship with the young man seems to continue on past this episode. And you get more and more explicit eroticism, passion, and references to sexuality in these poems to the young man. And there is a common pattern of Shakespeare trying to deal with or grapple with separation from the young man and longing for him. And perhaps he is dealing with these anxieties and frustrations of separation by writing these more and more erotic and passionate poems. And the most important one, the one that I think is kind of the key, possibly, although I shouldn't use that word, but is critical to understanding the relationship that these poems came out of, is number 50. So number 50 uses an extended conceit 
of describing riding a horse while traveling away from the young man and having to face this grief of separation and distance. So I'll read Sonnet 50. How heavy do I journey on the way, when what I seek, my weary travel's end, doth teach that ease and that repose to say, thus far the miles are measured from thy friend. The beast that bears me, tired with my woe, plods dully on, to bear that weight in me, as if by some instinct the wretch did know his rider loved not speed, being made from thee. The bloody spur cannot provoke him on, that sometimes anger thrusts into his hide, which heavily he answers with a groan, more sharp to me than spurring to his side. For that same groan doth put this in my mind, my grief lies onward, and my joy behind. So when I first read through Shakespeare's sonnets, this is the one I got to and said, oh, okay, they had sex. <laughs> that happened. So for one thing to start, you may know that horseback riding is often used as a sexual metaphor. But here in particular, Shakespeare is setting up this conceit that he then cleverly, in this classic Shakespearean trick, he sets up this trap that he then springs with a few last words in the final line. So on the one hand, he's saying, I am so sad and weary to be traveling away from you. And the horse that I'm riding senses this and is reluctant and slow. And he describes then spurring the horse, right? Uh, stabbing or thrusting the spur of his heel into the horse's side, which the horse then groans in response to. Right? And then in the final couplet, Shakespeare makes it explicit that this thrusting and groaning has a double meaning. That same groan doth put this in my mind, right? Two things at once. My grief lies onward, right? So it's a groan of grief and sadness and my joy behind, right? It also brings to mind the thrusting and groaning of joy that I'm leaving behind me. Okay, so <laughs> he's spelling it out about as straightforwardly as Shakespeare can that he associates the young man now with the sexual act, right? And naturally, in the next poem in 51, he then describes the return, right? There's sort of a companion piece describing the return back to the man, which he describes as a fiery race. And he says, quote, Then should I spur, though mounted on the wind, in winged speed, no motion shall I know. Then can no horse with my desire keep pace. Right? So he feels passion. He feels desire. He is... Uh, emotionally out of control, trying to get back to the young man and the pleasure that he has with him. Okay, so once that very clear sexual overtone has been established, we then get Sonnet 52, which many critics, although it also has strong sexual overtones, many critics have discussed it and it's been reproduced and analyzed many times because it clearly has some sort of special place in the book. So this one describes his relationship with the young man as something hidden inside a secret chest 
that he only opens up once in a while. And so without pointing out anything further, I'll read Sonnet 52. So am I as the rich whose blessed key can bring him to his sweet uplocked treasure, the which he does not every hour survey for blunting the fine point of seldom pleasure. Therefore are feasts so solemn and so rare, since seldom coming in the long year set, like stones of worth they thinly placed are, or captain jewels in the carcanet. So is the time that keeps you as my chest, or as the wardrobe which the robe doth hide, to make some special instant special blessed by new unfolding his imprisoned pride. Blessed are you whose worthiness gives scope, being had to triumph, being lacked to hope. So again, there is so much packed into this sonnet that I can't go on discussing it. But he's describing here his encounters with the young man, this seldom pleasure that he has, as being set out through the year or in the calendar, like jewels in a long chain, right? Captain Jewels in the Carcanet. And he again describes encountering the young man and, quote, new unfolding his imprisoned pride, right? And remember, pride is a term that was often used to mean sexual organs, right? So being able to disrobe, right? Open up, disrobe, unfold his pride, and then have, triumph and have the young man, being had to triumph. So clearly there's this eroticism to the poem, but also this sense of of rareness and secrecy, rarefication. Something is hidden, it's locked up. And I am the rich, the rich man, who has this key through which he can unlock his treasure. And as some have pointed out, this is the only point in the entire sonnet series where the word key appears. And it suggests, there's strong suggestions that there's some kind of hidden meaning or code in this poem that maybe forms a key to unlock the whole series maybe to unlock the identity of the young man? We don't really know, but clearly there are many suggestions to this effect built in to the poem. There's some connection between, uh, between Shakespeare's love of hidden meanings that he is then bringing to this situation of having a secret affair. In Sonnet 53, we see more praises for the young man's beauty, and he's described in androgynous terms. He's likened to both... Helen and Adonis from ancient Greek legend. But also in his last line, Shakespeare is careful to praise his character as well. Quote, In all external grace you have some part, but you like none, none you, for constant heart. So you can see Sonnet 53 is maybe kind of capping off this escalation of this love affair and is sort of being a kind of peak of devotion to the man. And then in 55, we have a return again to the theme of preserving the young man through poetry, right? All of these sonnets, including 52, have this theme of the passage of time, the cycles of time. And then in 55, we get this anxiety again, how to preserve the man's youth and beauty in poetry. And he says, quote, not marble nor the gilded monuments of princes shall outlive this powerful rhyme but you shall shine more bright in these contents 
than unswept stone besmeared with sluttish time. And then in 60, a few poems later, again, we see this increasing anxiety about time and by implication about aging and mortality. And Sonnet 60 famously begins with the lines, Like as the waves make towards the pebbled shore, so do our minutes hasten to their end. And you could say, in a sense, this theme, this theme of aging, of feeling the approach of mortality, and also fear and anxiety about the maturation of the young man and the possibility that he will no longer be this fair, androgynous youth. This then runs through really 60 more poems right after these. And one of the few points of interruption where we see a different theme and a different topic come up is in sonnets 78 through 86, which together comprise the so-called Rival Poet series. So in these nine sonnets, 78 to 86, we see Shakespeare expressing anxiety over the appearance of a rival, someone who is competing with him for fame, wealth, and patronage, probably, as a fellow writer, but more importantly, competing for the love and attention of the young man. And these sonnets have attracted many scholars' attention, right? Especially because they might tell us something about Shakespeare's relationship with other great writers. And many have speculated that the rival poet might be Christopher Marlowe or Samuel Daniel, and that it must be someone of immense talent, right, in order to intimidate Shakespeare and make him insecure about his own writing. But this probably is really a misreading, right? If you look at the poems carefully, their main concern about the rival is that he's attracting the attention and, and appreciation of the young man. And not necessarily because he's such a great writer, but rather because he's a love rival. Because in addition to talented, he's also good-looking, charismatic, possibly comes from a higher social class than Shakespeare that is hinted at in many ways. And so really, this is another love triangle, right? It's a love triangle now of three men instead of two men and a woman. But this sort of core of Shakespeare's anxiety is captured most of all in sonnet number 80, which I'll read to you. Oh, how I faint when I of you do write, knowing a better spirit doth use your name and in the praise thereof spends all his might to make me tongue-tied, speaking of your fame. But since your worth, wide as the ocean is, the humble as the proudest sail doth bear, my saucy bark inferior far to his on your broad main doth willfully appear. Your shallowest help will hold me up afloat, whilst he upon your soundless deep doth ride, or being wrecked, I am a worthless boat, he of tall building and of goodly pride. So as you can see here, there are again words and phrases with suggestive sexual overtones, right? This other man is riding you, again, <laughs> riding on your deep, and I am paralyzed, right? Not because I'm not a good writer, but because I now feel insecure about myself and can't write or can't speak. And this other man, he says, although he's using this metaphor of the boat, he says he is of tall building and of goodly pride. Right? And again, pride also has this sexual double meaning. So Shakespeare maybe is afraid that he's physically 
inadequate compared to this other poet, right? And further, in the other rival poet sonnets, there are many references, apparently, to sex and eroticism, to attractiveness, and to skill, which can mean, you know, when he refers to talent, that may not just be skill with a pen, but also skill in bed, right? Now, as for who was this rival poet, you know, there's been, as I said, a lot of speculation, but Sonnet 86 probably provides the best clues as to who this rival poet was. So in Sonnet 86, this poem is extremely strange and cryptic. Shakespeare complains of being paralyzed by writer's block and by insecurity, and he again uses this sailing metaphor, right? This metaphor serves him once more. And he says, quote, Was it the proud full sail of his great verse, bound for the prize of all too precious you, that did my ripe thoughts in my brain in hearse, making their tomb the womb wherein they grew? Was it his spirit by spirits taught to write, above a mortal pitch that struck me dead? No, neither he nor his compeers by night, giving him aid, my verse astonished. He nor that affable, familiar ghost, which nightly gulls him with intelligence, as victors of my silence cannot boast. I was not sick of any fear from thence, but when your countenance filled up his line, then lacked I matter that enfeebled mine. So here, for one thing, Shakespeare is explicitly saying, I'm not intimidated by this other guy as a writer. I'm just suffering and paralyzed because he's writing about you. And he's even used your name, right? He's, he's dared to speak somehow explicitly of his love for you. And that is what is paralyzing him. So it was not the quality, but... Furthermore, there's this strange middle part of the poem where Shakespeare specifically rebuts the idea that spirits are somehow intimidating him. Spirits that are guiding or helping or inspiring, you could say, the other poet. And then furthermore, that it was not a ghost, a familiar ghost who somehow consorts with this other man that intimidated Shakespeare. So why is the rival poet supposedly consorting with spirits and ghosts coming to him at night? Well, we should consider that one of the other prominent poets that sometimes has been mentioned as a possible identity of the rival poet was George Chapman, a very respected Elizabethan poet who had dedicated some of his poets to a young man named Henry Rivesley, the Earl of Southampton who also is considered to be a possible patron of Shakespeare and maybe the identity of the young man. So that's one reason why some people have looked to George Chapman, but we'll talk about the young man's possible identity later. So Chapman had dedicated some of his poems to Lord Southampton, as did Shakespeare. Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis and Rape of Lucrece are also dedicated to Henry Riothsley, Earl of Southampton. And they include, these dedications include expressions of love. So perhaps we're seeing a sign here of a love triangle of Chapman, Shakespeare, and the young man, if the young man is Henry Ridesley. Now, what about the ghost and the spirits? Well, Chapman 
famously made the first English verse translation of Homer's epics. And reportedly, he claimed that he was helped in his translation project by Homer's spirit, who came to him at night and guided him. So perhaps this is what Shakespeare is referring to when he says he is by spirits taught. And as Don Patterson points out in his article about the sonnets, he also says, well, there's this further reference to an affable, familiar ghost, which nightly gulls him with intelligence. Well, gull is an archaic word that means to trick or mislead someone with false reports or false rumors. So apparently this ghost is coming to him and giving him bad reports or bad intelligence, as the poem says. Well, George Chapman also, as one of his poetic projects, completed an unfinished poem called Hero and Leander that had been started by Christopher Marlowe. And Christopher Marlowe, who wrote this, the beginning of this unfinished poem, was very likely a spy. There are documents from the university that he attended and from the English government that seem to imply that he did some undercover spying work for Elizabeth's government. And so it seems that Shakespeare, possibly in this sonnet, is imagining the ghost of Marlowe also visiting Chapman, the same way that Chapman said the ghost of Homer visited him, and instead of helping him and guiding him, tricking him with bad advice, right, gulling him. Now, this is all speculative, right? It seems to basically add up. If we suppose it, it's, it's plausible that this is who the rival poet is, and that's why Shakespeare is making these weird allusions. Nonetheless, it seems, regardless of exactly how this all happened and who the individual was, the relationship did still continue. And we have 40 more sonnets further beyond this one, number 86. And again, we get these similar themes we've seen before of the passage of time, the cycles of time and aging, and of really probably increasing anxiety over whether the chemistry, the attraction would last and whether the relationship would last. How long did it go on? Well, there are certain clues and indications, such as in Sonnet 104, where the speaker starts to sort of take stock of their relationship. And he says, quote, to me, fair friend, you never can be old. Maybe a little denial right there, right? But nonetheless, to me, fair friend, you never can be old. For as you were when first your eye I eyed, such seems your beauty still. Three winters cold have from the forests shook three summers pride. Three beauteous springs to yellow autumn turned in process of the seasons have I seen. Three April perfumes in three hot Junes burned since first I saw you fresh, which yet are green. So this poem has this retrospective kind of scope and it calls back again to those themes earlier of spring, of budding, of harvest, right? But now the cycle is being completed. Shakespeare is also witnessing the, the spring being burned up in the hot summer and progressing into autumn and to winter. And yet, he says, you are still green, right? Like the meadows green. You are still fertile, alluring, attractive. And this is the sort of theme Shakespeare hits over and over again, perhaps, you know, as symptom of denial, right? <laughs> I don't care that you're getting older. Uh, but 
He implies here in this poem, of course, that the relationship has gone on for three years. They've completed now three cycles. And again, repeating this obsession with the number three, three upon three. Now, this was a poetic convention. There are other sonnet series also where authors write back about uh, the passage of time and, and three years. So maybe this is just a poetic convention, or maybe this really is a poem written after three years of this relationship, or at least of this acquaintance. When were they written? This is a question many people ask, and based on style and allusions, most critics tend to think that they were written probably in about the mid-1590s, around the same time that Shakespeare was writing plays like Romeo and Juliet and and Henry IV, Part One, that have similar sorts of allusions. However, there seem to be some possible clues in some of these later poems after 100 that might be hinting at the exact dates. Particularly, Sonnet 107 begins with this very strange kind of moony, mystical-sounding quatrain. Quote, Not mine own fears, nor the prophetic soul of the wide world dreaming on things to come, can yet the lease of my true love control, supposed as forfeit to a confined doom. The mortal moon hath her eclipse endured, and the sad augurs mock their own presage. Incertainties now crown themselves assured, and peace proclaims olives of endless age. So Shakespeare, in a very unusual way, seems to be referring to immediate events, things that are happening right now. And there are these references to uh, markings of time, like an eclipse, right? Uh, and also of crowning. Insurgencies now crown themselves assured. So many people have theorized that this poem might be referring to the coronation procession of James I, in which we know Shakespeare took part as a member of the King's Men in 1604. And, uh, you know, there's this reference to crowning and this pronouncement of predictions of long-lasting peace, which is the sort of thing that one says in uh, commendatory verses for a new monarch, right? You will have a long and peaceful reign. So it is possible that this might be a little kind of event marker that Shakespeare is slipping in here. Or, you know, maybe not. It's very indefinite. And also, if that's true, that would place the dating of this sonnet and probably others like it much later in 1603-1604. And if that's true then maybe this relationship went on for much longer. Maybe we're talking about something more like 10 or 12 years. Or maybe there's a gap, okay? And that's something I'll probably get to later in another installment. Maybe there is a long separation here for some reason that now is over in Sonnet 107. So as these last sonnets to the young man go on, again, there's these repeated expressions of long-lasting devotion, uh, putting aside, minimizing this concern about age, change, personal development. And the most famous of all of these sonnets is surely number 116, right, which stands out as one of the most famous from the whole book, which reads, quote, 
Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. So you see here he's talking about marriage, right? Not literally, presumably, but a kind of metaphorical marriage between himself and the young man, which he insists will last because their minds are true, meaning loyal, right? Love does not alter when the people involved in it alter. It continues. And he uses this metaphor of a star, right? Uh, the, the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken, meaning he may be measured and placed in the sky with an astrolabe as a way to navigate, uh, but its worth is incalculable. And then in the third quatrain, we see this return again to the metaphors of plants, of growth, of vegetation, right? Rosy lips and cheeks. But now he's thinking about autumn and the harvest, right? Time's sickle that is going to come and cut you down. He's thinking more and more about aging and mortality and the end of this seasonal cycle that runs all through the sonnets. But still, you can see 116 as a kind of, again, an, an expression of insecurity, right? Methinks the lady doth protest too much. Why is he insisting over and over again? I'm not losing interest in you. I'm going to love you forever. Have, don't have any doubt about it. And the final couplet you can see is having a kind of insecure uh, urgency to it, right? If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. And after 116, you get only 10 more sonnets to the young man, many of them on the same sort of themes and using the same sort of images. And they end, as I said before, with sonnet number 126, which is different from all the others. It deals explicitly with death, right? With time coming again with his sickle to cut us down. And rather than being made of three rhyming quatrains and a couplet, instead it's six couplets adding up to 12 lines with the last two lines left off as if saying this story is now being cut short, right? It has this note of finality, but also at the same time of a cliffhanger of incompleteness. So that's my overview of what we can see about these relationships and what Shakespeare is saying about them, the tumultuous ups and downs, the complicated, multiple concatenating triangles with himself, the young lover, the dark lady, and the rival poet, and the way that he is trying to transmute his feelings into art to make something lasting, something immortal, out of this welter of fear, of insecurity, of ambivalence, shame, disgust. Now, this 
should, of course, raise questions of how and why were these poems that are so personal and often even shocking, how and why were they published? And who were these people, right? Can we possibly figure out or at least guess who might have been these people that he had these very fraught, emotional, personal relationships with? So that I will leave until another installment. And as I said before, after this, I will also produce a segment about the so-called authorship controversy and the question of whether Shakespeare wasn't really Shakespeare, of whether perhaps these poems and plays were in fact penned by somebody else. And I'll examine that in a lecture that I'll post only to Patreon for patrons only. So if you want to hear that, please go and become a patron for any amount, even if it's just a dollar. Thank you.